On September 14, 2018, Hurricane Florence made landfall on the Atlantic coast, coming ashore right around Wilmington, North Carolina, as a Category 1 storm. Welcome, everybody, to the Local Control Podcast. My name is Peter Ravella. I'm the host of this show, and I'm pleased to have today joining me Chris Gibson, president of TI Coastal uh, Coastal Services from Wilmington, North Carolina. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me on, Peter. Well, you know, Chris, if we were we've we've done a couple of shows trying to sort out how Hurricane Florence affected the Carolinas. Uh, we interviewed Steve Smith, a city commissioner <clears throat> from one of your clients, the town of Topsail Beach, and also an inland property owner uh, and. Uh, Steve Mercer, who uh, who runs a, co- a company called Coastal Transplants, and now we're going to get to talk to the experts, and that's you, Chris. We wanted to talk to the engineers who've counted the sand grains and figured out what this storm did to the shoreline there in North Carolina, so really glad to have you on the show. Well, hopefully, hopefully I can give you some good information, and we can uh, help people understand what we're actually going through here. Well... Tell us about tell us about the hurricane. Tell us about your experience. What did how well, how was it? I live here behind Tops, Topsail Island. I'm, I'm probably one of the few coastal engineers that's crazy enough to actually live on the water. Um, I, we're just north of Wilmington, North Carolina, about 20 miles. We it was a very interesting storm. You know, it came from a it came from an odd direction. We very rarely see them come from the east like that. They usually hit us coming up from the south. Uh, so we had some differences in wind direction, et cetera. Uh, as you know, everybody, everybody was scared to death with it being a, a category four. I mean, that's just, that's a tough, tough thing to come in here. You look, uh, inland, uh, a mile, the islands are elevation in this area, elevation 15, 18, some of your highest elevations, uh, on the islands. Mm-hmm. And then as you go inland, there's some pretty low elevations for a considerable distance. So you're talking about the surge, you're talking about wind that is just phenomenal, um, you know, we've had some benchmark storms here over the years. Back in the 50s, we had Hurricane Hazel. And, and then in the late 90s, we had the, the Bonnie, Fran, Bertha, Dennis, Floyd uh, epic that went through there in uh, 96 and 99. Um, you know, we were here during the storm. Uh, we sheltered right up the street from my house here. My wife is, works in an assistant living facility. And so they got they got called in on lockdown. So we went up there and, and helped her with the folks at at that place. And it's it's really an amazing thing. I mean, when these storms come, folks that are in those assisted facilities, there's nowhere for them to go. You yeah. can't evacuate them. There's no there are no beds for them. So you have to shelter in place. And so we were up there for about four days while the while the storm came through. And mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the things about this storm that was a really big deal was she was slow moving and. We kind of got the water push of a four coming right. up. Um, the wind slowed, so we didn't have the structural damage from the wind that you that you see with the big storms. But she came through slow. We had at least four tides that we had surge on. Uh, and it was – with my house, there's a small bridge. It was off and on being able to get down, down to the house. We were only able to get here on low tide because the bridge was, was covered by three to four feet of water. Wow. So, um, in, in our, our yard, it was, it was about like Fran. We were very close to the same mark that the water came up there. Uh, didn't get in the house, thank God, but, uh, you know, we did, we did have quite a bit of water and it was, 
it was high enough that one of my neighbors called me at one point and said, your boat's floating around in the middle of the creek. And um, what had actually happened was the boat was so high up on the pilings, they couldn't see the, it floated up all the way to the top of the pilings, which the top is. Oh yeah. uh, Yeah. It tops at elevation 12 and and they were, it was below the gunnels. So she couldn't see the pilings. So she thought the the boat was floating around with the dock in the middle of the channel. Wow. So um, it was, uh, it was a definitely an interesting storm. A uh, lot of beach erosion, especially the north end of Topsail. That kind of took the brunt well, of it. Let's, um, uh, let me ask you about, because I think one thing for people who, who maybe are inland listeners or folks who on the West Coast who aren't familiar with hurricanes, you know, when you have these big, wide hurricanes, like this was, this, uh, Florence was very large in scope and it was moving slow and it, the analogy that I always think about in terms of storm surge is these things are like a snowplow pushing water in front of them as they move from this one started in Cape Verde off of the African continent uh, all the way across the Atlantic, pushing this water in front of it. And like you say, the speed of it, the slow speed of it kept that high water pressed up against the Atlantic shoreline there on Topsail Island for four tidal cycles, that's two over a two-day period, right? That, that's correct. I mean, usually when we have storms come in, normal speed, you have one tidal cycle in the surge. Mm-hmm. So we had four times that. Yeah. And with the storm coming and the direction that it came, typically for us, we get winds out of the northeast, and then we get winds out of out of the south. That's more of a west-southwest direction. So the front side of the storm, we get a big, big push on, we get the high water, we get the wind, and then on the back side, it blows off the land. Yeah. So it blows everything flat. Yeah. Well, in this particular storm, we got winds, because of the direction it came from, we got winds from the north and from the south. Hmm. So basically, we got a longshore wind, and so we got swell from both directions. So not only did we get it for four days, we got both sides of the storm. So this was a significant impact far beyond what you would normally see with a Category 1 that would be in and out of here in a day. So what and for, what does it mean – and sorry, I just want – I'm very curious about this notion that you had a longshore sediment current set up that went in both directions depending on you know what part of the storm was on the shore at that moment, the forward leading edge or the backside of the storm as it crossed. I mean, what does that mean in in terms of – impact to the beach uh it's it's significant i mean we saw along this area uh if you look and talking with other engineers as well what we saw on average was somewhere between 40 and 50 cubic yards per linear foot was lost off of the beach for a stretch that was 75 miles long wow um it's a huge number now that's off of the that's off of the beach and off of the you know what would be the near shore bar yeah but um, Chris, put well, that, before you jump into the explanation, I don't, and I don't want to cut you off, but, but for people who aren't familiar with these kinds of numbers, 40 to 50 cubic yards per linear feet of beach over 75 miles of shoreline, that's yes. an incredible amount of material. It's, it's um, massive. Uh, I'm trying to do the math here in my head, you're talking about uh, 2.5 million yards uh, I think this is right. Yeah, 5,000 You're you're two hundred fifty thousand yards a a mile. So mm-hmm. you're talking about 
20 million cubic yards of sand. Something like that. And for for folks who are unfamiliar with these are terms that coastal engineers use all the time, and a lot of other engineers do, uh, talking about material volumes and cubic yards. But uh, I always try to do the dump truck thing. Um, A typical dump truck with a double axle on the back of it, that's what is that, a three-yard or a 10-yard truck? A a 10-yard truck is a double axle. So you're... You're talking about two million truckloads of sand, right? And and this is fifty yards per linear foot. So yes. you're talking about taking ten, what five big truck dump for uh, dump trucks full of sand for every foot of beach. I just want people to get a feeling for how much sand was yeah. moved off of the beach. And uh, when I know when we're buying it, Chris, and we're trying, you're trying to design projects, and I'm trying to raise the money to pay for these things. Fifty cubic yards per linear foot is a hefty beach project. It, it's a decent sized project. You yeah. know, you're talking at that point, you're getting uh, your are two million yard, two million dollars a mile, maybe, maybe a little more than that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we want to thank our sponsor, the Dune Restoration Company, Dune Doctors, out of Pensacola, Florida. Uh, led by Frederic Barasset, a great professional. So for all the dune restoration work over there on Topsail Island, you know, maybe give Frederic a call at dunedoctors.com. It's, well, it's a lot of sand. So um, I wanted to, so let's leap back to the point we, we departed from, which is why this longshore sediment transport and the way the storm came ashore and its duration on the coast made such a difference. Uh, you were explaining about the transport system a little bit. Can can you jump back to that? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the th- what we saw a lot of is as we've been surveying the coast, and, and we do we do do a good bit of that. Um, we've been we've been surveying, and what we've seen is that there was, uh, of course, a lot of sand in the upland part of the beach stripped off. The lower part of the profile was flattened. And then there's a massive trough that runs like a topsail island, the whole length of the island. Hmm. Typically, the trough between the beach and the sandbar is only about six feet deep. And now it's anywhere from 12 to 14. Wow. Um, and then the bar comes up and, and the bar comes all the way back up to, to four or five feet. And then it drops right off the backside of that. And this is underwater. This is underwater. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we expect to see some of that. Transport that's in the outer bar gets pushed back in as we get the summer winds will will tend to bring that back in. But as you look forward for us, the problem is now we've got this deep trough that needs to be filled in. Is as we go into the northeasterly system, we're gonna that we have annually between January and March, mm-hmm. we're gonna see a lot more of the beach sand kind of stripped off to fill the trough rather than the the bar pulled in. Wow. Uh, Typically, we see the bar migrate offshore during the winter and then right. migrate onshore during the summer. That's a steep – so you have a steep-facing beach, 14 feet of water right off of the beach, I guess, within, what, 100 yards? Yes. So you get this very deep pocket that runs along the entire length of uh, Topsail Island, 28-mile-long barrier island. You're right. I think the idea of the sand sloughing off the beach further and coming into that trough, that underwater trough, so you're looking at higher rates of erosion in the foreseeable future, which is, I guess, kind of typical during the nor'easter season. But uh, the beach is in a pretty vulnerable condition, it sounds like. It, it really is. The, the profile of the beach got pulled down enough that where we're seeing um, just a regular, regular seas on a full moon tide on a large part of the island where there is dune left. 
we're seeing the water come right up to the dune and is, is constantly battering the dune. Right. So in, in the near future, you know, and I'm sure you talked with, with Steve and uh, about this, you know, the, the towns are looking to, to go ahead and start rebuilding through the FEMA process. And mm-hmm. until that gets done, I mean, we're the, the, the island is the upland parts are very vulnerable. And in fact, there are parts on the island where, um, because the dune was completely taken out, yeah. uh, on a lunar tide, there's water in the street just because the elevation is that low. There's wow. no protection for it. Well, here's a good place to pause and remind people. We're going to keep talking, and I want to I want to go into the numbers, the quantities, more about the profiles and what you guys have seen in your post-storm survey. But we are getting to talk about damage to shorelines and beaches, and we are talking a whole lot less about houses that were destroyed. And, and it, there was a study released uh, this week on Florence that's posted on Coastal News Today. So folks, check it out at CoastalNewsToday.com. That illustrated that in this particular case, there was very little doubt that the damages to structures were substantially less due to the presence of these uh, managed shorelines and good wide beaches. So it's a lot of damage, but we're talking about things that are a little easier to replace than lives and property. Uh, We can put the sand back. But so I think, you know, the the beach performance from that perspective uh, sounded like, Chris, from what I've read, pretty good. Well, absolutely. The project at Topsail has been, has done phenomenal. It's been going, the the program, I say project, really isn't a project, it's a program down Mm -hmm. here. Yeah. And so over the past 10 years, we've gone through several renourishment efforts. Uh, We got uh, hit during Hurricane Irene uh, and through some FEMA funding and town funding, we restored and expanded the beach down there then. And um, one of the things is that project's been through, we got some some dune damage from Florence for the first time, but we'd actually gone through Joaquin. Yeah, uh, which was borderline being declared a disaster here. Uh, didn't quite make the numbers on the federal scale. Um, then we went through Matthew, which was declared a disaster, and, and we had to do some rebuild from that. And then Florence, all on the same project. Wow. So we still haven't, we haven't even, because of permitting stuff, we haven't gotten through what we needed to to even rebuild from Matthew. And the fact that we're only losing a little bit of the dune um, versus losing homes is pretty phenomenal. Yeah. We look at the data, the whole, the, the program up until this point, um, has been to hold the line. And that's after Florence, that's exactly where we are. We're, unfortunately we're backed up to where we were 10 years ago, hmm. but we're no, no worse off than we were 10 years ago. In terms of shoreline position and, and so in, terms of shore, in terms of shoreline position, in terms of the amount of dune that we have, <clears throat> Uh, all of that, it, it, the profile matches up almost identical to where we were back, back in 09. Wow. So, you know, the the program has done exactly what it was. It was to hold the line till we could do more of a storm damage reduction style project, which we've got slated at, at, on the Topsail Beach end for next year. And we're currently working with Town of Surf City to try to do something at the local level while we wait for federal appropriations Um they have an authorized project, but it's been a struggle to get appropriations through Congress, right, uh, and through the through the core work plan. So, um, you know, they're looking at doing uh, a local project there, and we're working diligently on that. And 
hopefully can tie Topsil's program next year in with some some renourishment uh, there at the Surf City uh, as well. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great? You know, a little regional planning, a little shared cost on mobilization, uh, much more cost effective. And uh, I read in, I read recently that the town of Surf City, and for those folks that uh, aren't familiar, Topsail Island, three communities on that island, Topsail Beach on the south, Surf City in the middle at about 12 miles of the island, right? And then North Topsail Beach uh, at the north end, three cities in a row. And here's what I'm interested on the Local Control Podcast, and I think it's something we're going to track on Coastal News today, really is the tale of the two cities. Uh, Topsail Beach has a uh, an independently financed, well, let's say they have their own beach management program, Chris, that you run for them, uh, that they yep. pay a lot of money for. Uh, almost 40% of their local property tax base is devoted to their shoreline management program. I mean, they've got a program, they've operated it, and that means when the sand is lost, FEMA comes in and replaces that because FEMA would rather buy sand than rebuild infrastructure and houses and all of the costs of that. It's a, it's a, it's a cost-effective risk management tool for to have a good beach. Next door in Surf City, as you're saying, no federal project in place, no actual program that has been put on the shore, authorized federal project, and you know, so they are not eligible for public assistance for the replacement of sand on that beach in Surf City. Is is that right, uh, Chris? Well, they're not eligible for a beach renourishment. They are for emergency berm restoration. Yes. Right. Category, so what's that's that, G? A, category, category B. B. Uh, and that's a much smaller amount. I mean, you're, the, yeah. the max on that one's six yards per linear foot. And, you know, that's kind of, that's a real tiny Band-Aid when you've lost 50 yards per linear for foot. For sure. So, and, and Surf City, it's, it's, people look at it, it's interesting, it's a town that, that kind of, it, it changes from one end to the other. Um, the northern end, people really see what, where they, the damage that was done by the storm because the dunes were completely taken away. Hmm. So it was from the road out to the ocean, completely flat. Wow. Um, what they don't see is that there's an even bigger risk, which is to the south. All of those homes on the north end were, were built on relatively low elevation. Their pilings are in the ground. They're still in the ground. The houses aren't going anywhere, although right. you know they're, they're on flat ground and don't have any protection. They're on pilings. But as you go further south, there's a little bit high, there's higher elevation. So these homes now are kind of on a precipice. So the dune is eroded back, and it's within 15 to 20 feet of the homes. Wow. And they're up at elevation 18, and standard piling depth is only about 8 feet. Wow. So if they're built only to the standards, if they have 10 or 15 more feet of erosion, the pilings will actually come out of the ground, and the houses will start to fall. Huh. So the south end, while it looks better visually, is actually – and I say the south, the south end of Surf uh, City – Right. Looks better visually – it's actually in a larger, in a, in a much more dangerous situation than the north end is. Hmm. Wow. Did so, not know that. And um, so in has this mode, now the Surf City has put in place a local funding mechanism for shoreline management. It's not going to be on the scale adequate for the losses that they suffered here. But what is the prospect of, of having a nourishment project next year that would cover... Uh, part of Topsail Beach and Surf City. Is that 
Is that feasible, Chris? So right now we're in the permitting process and we just got a, for Topsail Beach and we just got the executive summary from the biological opinion and and we were not likely to impact. So we're moving forward with that. And that's going to be, it's actually, it's neat. It's a, um, what we've done is we, we have a beach inlet and sound project there. So what we're doing is we're doing navigation maintenance for the cha- for the inlet that's at the south end of the island, right. as well as the associated channels, and using that material to do a, a coastal storm damage reduction project, and uh, kind of killing two birds with one stone, right. and putting both the dredging and the beach nourishment on uh, a five year cycle. Hmm. Well, that the main the main channel that runs behind the island, the Banks Channel, also runs up for several miles into Surf City, and so Surf City is looking to do. We're, we've been talking about it and kind of trying to, to scope this in the right way um, to continue the dredging of that channel, right, and then use that material on their beachfront as well. So there's a good possibility that huh. we will be able to, ex- shall we say, expand on Topsail's project and. Um, carry out a project that will at least bring back some of the material to surf city and, uh-huh. you know, at least get us, get them stabilized okay. a little bit more. Um, there are some funds that are in place outside of FEMA. There, there's some state programs that are available with navigation. Uh, the state yeah, has the a, what they call the shallow draft inlet fund yep. um, that will pay two thirds. And we recently started here in North Carolina, um, a beach nourishment fund at the state level and uh, bill that just passed the, I believe it passed, I believe it passed both the house and the Senate Did last it. week. Great. Um, was uh, put 18 and a half million into the beach renourishment fund, which is a drop in the bucket right now. Right. But it is the first drop and that's kind of the way North Carolina has go- gone. First year we set up a fund. Second year we begin to fund it. Third year we, we yeah. really get into it once we see what we're that's doing. That's right. Got to build the structure first. Got to build the structure first. So, you know, with those kind of funds coming down the pipe, um, North Carolina has taken a really positive lead and realizing that some of these things don't come through the federal appropriations. I mean, if you looked at the first time they started looking at Surf City for beach nourishment at a federal level, it was 32 years ago. Gosh. And it's been going on. At first, they didn't meet CB ratio. Now they do. And, but we've been, since 1986, they've been looking at doing projects throughout the whole length of this island. Yep. And to date, there hasn't been a grain of sand put on the beach by the federal government. So let's talk about 1986, there is a federally authorized project for, it's, I think it's in two federal projects, but basically the all of Topsail Island is, has an authorized federal program in 1986. Well, now, now, right? Is that right? let me correct. So in 86, okay. they start studying. It. Okay. Um, by 92, they've, they've come up with a, with a project, but it only the only part of it that gets authorized is the southern four miles or so that is that is within Topsail Beach, not even okay. the whole town of Topsail Beach. Okay. And that's, that's one of the things we always joke about. The, the Topsail Beach project is called the New River Inlet and West Onslow Beach project. And Topsail Beach is neither New River Inlet nor West Onslow Beach. <laughs> right. Um, you I know, do remember the, being the, confused that's by that. I couldn't tell what was it. That's the name that stuck with it. Yeah. And in 1992, it was cost prohibitive for Topsail Beach alone to sign on to the PPA. 
And so that kind of died on the vine. And then after the, the hurricanes we had in 96 and 99, we had five hurricanes in, in three years that were all direct hits here. And um, at that point, the study started over again. And then we, we're to 2014, uh, finally passed projects for Topsail Beach and separately for North Topsail and Surf City together. Okay. Well, all of that to say, uh, the point I'm, and I think that we're trying to convey, you're certainly trying to convey, is that the federal interest on the shoreline is now established in, in, in terms of authorized projects, no appropriations yet, nor yeah. I, I think it's questionable whether that can be reasonably expected, uh, but the towns on their own are starting to step forward financially and develop their own projects, have their own engineering leads, as you do, Chris, for these communities on this island. Uh, and let me just say a bit of commentary here to our friends in Texas, where I am, um, is to take a look at what North Carolina has done programmatically in terms of its shoreline management program. This shallow draft inlet approach, uh, in terms of the politics, is a very, very good answer. And and the reason it works is because you're, as you said, it's a win-win. You're serving two interests at the same time. We're clearing navigation channels and around Topsail Island there. The recreational boating industry is meaningful. It's a very popular thing to do. The back bays are stunningly beautiful. It's just a great area. But you do have to have these channels to get in and out of the, the Atlantic. So that the management of those channels and the clearing of those of sand to be beneficially used on the beaches, you get you get the you get the support of the boating community, the real estate people like it because those boat accesses are very important for them financially, and you get the sand sources on the beach. Win win. Way to go, North Carolina. Come on, Texas. We are falling behind. <laughs> well, I'd like to tell you something about that. This really that makes this program even more extraordinary okay. is it's a user based program. It doesn't come out of the general fund. Hmm. Um, so the way it's set up, uh, as far as funding, the local towns have to pay uh, 33%, and then the state will – well, the towns pay all of it, and then the, the state will pay back uh, up to 66 and two-thirds. Okay. okay, two-thirds of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And the funds that the state get are based off of voter registration and gas tax. And so what North Carolina – what we did here – was we looked at we look at our waterways as if they're highways and boaters pay gas tax too. Yeah. So the North Carolina DOT, um, I believe it's a penny out of the gas tax goes to the shallow draft inlet fund because recreational boaters, most of them um, can't don't get their uh, highway tax back. Right. So that money is you've got the boaters through registration and gas tax paying into it. And then the beachfront owners through ad valorem and the town share yeah. paying to it. So it's strictly user-based. Folks up in the western part of the state are not paying into this fund at all. Yep. And so, so part of solving that politics in North Carolina, and I make this comparison a lot, it, North Carolina is an east-west state with a coast. Uh, what do you all have, six coastal counties or maybe it's eight? Twenty. Twenty coastal. And then – but a small percentage of the population of the state is coastal, and all That's of correct. the you know Raleigh, Durham, uh, the the major metropolitan areas are well inland, mm -hmm. don't identify with the coast, 
and it creates a difficult political environment to do capital projects along the shoreline because the, polit the political power doesn't reside along the water. That's kind of similar to Texas. Uh, 254 counties here. Folks in El Paso don't think they're beach people because they aren't, nor are folks in Dallas and Fort Worth, really. But the problems along the water require a lot of political horsepower and a lot of money. And uh, this shallow draft channel, which serves multiple interests, is a great way to approach the politics of shoreline management, in my opinion. And and Texas hasn't quite cracked this nut at all. Uh, we don't have we don't have a shallow draft program at all, and we do have a a state fund, but it's appropriation based every two years, and uh, it kind of hits and misses. There isn't any dedicated at revenue, and when you don't have steady money, trying to get you know the engineers have to struggle with what the hell are we going to be doing in five years? We can't tell. Uh, makes right. it really tough to do long term planning. Right. But I know we went far afield there, but I really wanted to argue, uh, and I, I, I often do this with North Carolina. I think there's a lot to look at in North Carolina in terms of shoreline management uh, policy and programming and financing. I think some great things happening in that state. For those of you around the country who are struggling with similar issues, you know, take a look at what's going on in North Carolina. Take a look at Dare County. Take a look at... Uh, uh, Carteret County and look at what Pender County is doing and Chris is doing on Topsail Island. They're all successfully implementing shoreline management uh, strategies in uh, fairly you know, low population. These are not wealthy communities. These are folks who are trying to make it work and have been successful. So plug out to you guys in uh, Topsail Island, Chris, for the work you guys have been able to do. Well, I appreciate it. And, you know, Peter, you, the work you were doing with them financially planning, I mean, they they followed it, what you gave them back in 2009, 2010. They, they really took to heart, and, and that's, um, that's been a huge benefit because it made, it made a lot of sense. And, um, you know, you did a very, very nice job with the town setting all of that up and, and getting them to think, think about it and think about it as infrastructure, which right. it really is, which it really is for the community. It's the biggest piece of infrastructure they got. Yeah. And the community came together around that. It was a good effort. And, and uh, now let's talk about, so you guys are, we talked about this 14 foot, 12 to 14 foot deep trough right off of the beach that the condition of the shoreline is expected. I would think to, it's not going to improve over the winter, probably get a little bit worse. Uh, some very vulnerable properties in South Topsail Beach with pile depths that aren't enough sort of sitting up on the precipice, a little California style <laughs> Because they are, they're you're right. They're 14 feet yeah. up, and it's there's a little cliff there, and and the piles don't go deep enough. It's dangerous there now. Um, what are the so we've talked a little bit about the numbers? A loss of 50 cubic yards per linear feet, 40 to 50 over a very long stretch of the Atlantic shoreline. Uh, what are the what are the volume numbers telling you in your surveys right now uh, in terms of mass quantities? What what have you found out? What did Florence do to the beach uh, in absolute well, numbers? Well, in, in absolute, well, uh, I'm not sure quite understand the question, but you're talking, you're talking, well, I'm, how many, I'm not sure I understand exactly the Well, question. how many cubic yards were lost in Topsail Beach and how many well, cubic yards? Within, in certain, within you know, the town of Topsail Beach, we lost 1.2 million cubic yards. And most of that's pushed farther out into the profile out beyond the, the depth where it can be reclaimed. So in other mm -hmm. words, uh, you know, above 12 foot of water depth, say the end of the fishing pier 
out to that point, we lost a lot of sand. Beyond that, you've got six inches of sand distributed over the next 2,000 feet. So the, the profile just gets kind of flattened. Hmm. Uh, this was definitely a, a situation where it went offshore. We're not seeing massive amounts of material overwashed into the back bay or, or anything like that, okay. which we saw with, saw with other storms. So it's, it's been an offshore movement with this. Huh. Um, the, we didn't see massive – we saw movement of sand within the inlet systems, but, but the inlet systems didn't because of where they were – in their equilibrium, et cetera, from previous dredging, uh, we didn't see a large influx of sand into the into the inlet systems. Okay. So that means it's got to have gone offshore. Right. Um, so that's and that's what what we were seeing at Topsail. I think you'd see the same thing up and down the up and down the coast, but on our island, that's that's what we're seeing. Okay. So um, what that means long term mm-hmm. is that it's actually in some ways it's a positive thing. I mean, one of the things we saw in the the first project that Topsail did and then having Hurricane Irene, it was actually some of the blessing because the storm takes it. And when we build beaches, you have a limitation. You can only build so far out. Once you get into where you're putting sand into a certain depth of water, just because there's no velocity in the flow of sand and water, it begins to just stack up. It, it, it drops off at an unnaturally steep angle in, hmm. the, in the beaches. And so to build that outer part of the slope, which you need, you actually need storms to grab the sand and pull right. it out and build your, your base and yeah. then come back and you build your, you build another project on top of it. And so truly getting a beach stabilized is three or four projects through multiple storm events where that whole profile gets pushed out and you actually get wave energy being dissipated offshore right. several hundred yards rather than right at the dune face got it and so you know when we constantly build projects that are almost like in a triage um mindset where we're going to build a, a short high berm and lots of dune right up real tight it looks good to, uh, to us it makes people feel feel protected but the reality is that we need to get the sand offshore and, and get it breaking up energy out there and so one of the things with our designs is we we designed to do that to try to build flatter slopes and flatter beaches uh whatever the sand will allow us to do as far right. as that goes and then let mother nature move it around and that really helps us in the storm periods and it helps us use the storms to further the program right so, so we're trying to dissipate that energy further offshore the sand and this is kind of what people who work in the industry that you're in fully appreciate and understand whether they're elected officials or designers but or geographers or something but a lot of people who don't this profile idea that the shape of the beach is at the top up at the dune and all the way out offshore in that bar system is all part of the same system and the stability and performance of the shoreline or how the waves operate is dependent on the entire profile not just the sand up at the top where you put your towel um, so a million cubic, did you say a million to a million and a half in Topsail Beach was uh, lost? That's the yeah, rough with, number right now. That, within that four miles, we, lo- we lost 1.2 million. And, and so the replacement cost of the sand, of course, we haven't finished the project. It hasn't been bid. But what's your rough guess per cubic yard? How much does it cost to put a cubic yard of sand on that beach? By the time you go through everything you've got to go through in mobilization, 
you're on this particular project, you're on the order of, of $16 a yard. Wow. So the 16 million to what? 16 to 18 million dollars to Yeah. To we're, rest- we're pushing right at right at 20. Right at 20 million dollars for the 4 miles of Topsail Beach. Uh you know, I'm just trying to give a sense of scale in dollars uh because ultimately this has to be paid for and I want the listeners around the country to understand that and I talked to Steve Smith about this the city commissioner quite a bit. Uh it's worth driving home. These local communities are devoting substantial revenues to their own shoreline management funds. Uh, almost 40% of the property taxes in Tops, the town of Topsail Beach are devoted to this effort. Uh, the, the, the state of North Carolina is stepping forward here, and FEMA will participate as well. Mm-hmm. And this kind of tiered funding and tiered strategy is what I'm trying to you know, talk about and, and let listeners around the country understand is... Uh, the local folks and the local control podcast is dedicated to this idea. Let's talk about what the local communities can do and should do, and in this case, are doing uh, in terms of responding to these risks along the shoreline. And, and it's important. I mean, you talk about the money. It, it really is important to note. Pender County, where I live, um, and Topsail Beach is – the towns of Surf City and Topsail Beach are at, um, we – East of Highway 17, which is about a mile and a half inland of the Intercoastal Waterway. Right. East of 17 is 70% of our tax base in this one stretch. It's only about 15% of the county. Right. Land-wise. Right. So, and then you go over to the island, and they're about 60% of of that tax base. And so when you look at the... You say, well, $20 million is a lot to spend for all the folks on the beach, but, you know, our side of the county is one that spends, puts quite a bit of the money into the school systems and all of the other services that the county, yeah. the county gives. It's, it's, so, Chris, it's like, um, you know, this is the industry of the community and it's like, uh, you know, it would be a little bit like complaining about, uh, trail maintenance and slopes in Vail, Colorado. Say, why the heck are we spending all the money for the skiers? Well, because the business of Vail, Colorado, is winter tourism and skiing. The entire economy is built on that business. And in Absolutely. and on Topsail Island, you've got distributed small business ownership up and down the island. These are homes that are many are uh, there are residences there, uh, permanent residents uh, there, but there are also a lot of individual owners whose retirement depends on the sort of the turnover, the Airbnb kind of stuff, and. If you're looking at this as a classic sort of uh, free market kind of thing, you've got distributed ownership, lots of people whose uh, retirements are dependent or, or their economic uh, health is dependent on this. And we've got a huge industry that we can count and perform, and it contributes to, as you say, the local tax bases and the schools and all of that. Uh, yeah, these investments make sense because they economically make sense. And that's... Uh, I think this is a perfect example of where that is absolutely true. I, I would agree. And, and the examples you talk about, I've got, I've got aunts and uncles that, that do exactly what you're talking about, the, the weekly rental thing that is a, a major part of their retirement income. And it's not like they were you know, folks that were Fortune 500 company people. These are folks that were school, are school teachers yeah. and you know, invested in a beach house that they could rent out so they could pay for it and then 
in turn down the road, it became their, their retirement funding. Yeah. So and, and when people say, you know what, well, then they should pay. And you say, you know what, they do. 40% of their property taxes go to this shoreline management program, and they're, uh, they've stepped up to the plate. Um, anyway, um, I think that it's hard not to talk about shoreline management and money at the same time. I've always thought that was the trick. You have to deal with both at the same time which is why working with you, Chris, was so great, because I think your sensitivity to that as a taxpayer in the area was as good as it can be. Uh, but let's move up to Surf City here. Uh, longer stretch of beach, uh, did not have a beach restoration project on the shoreline in advance of Hurricane Florence, I understand. Right, correct. So they are a little bit longer. They're about The, the stretch at Surf City is about six and a half miles. Um, and again, they've been... Their program historically has been, you know, they've been waiting. They got the federal authorization, but not appropriated. They've been, for many years, that was, you know, it, that was the goal, very much to go with the federal project. And yeah. in, in their situation, uh, there's a lot of sense to that because they are central to the island. They they don't have the benefits of being able to use navigation maintenance very much right. for what they're doing. So they are looking at offshore resources, which are hopper dredge projects, which are, are more expensive. And, and Onslow Bay is, is kind of a, I won't say it's sand starved, but it is in a way sand starved. We have a very shallow uh, limestone rock outcrop that lies under, underneath most of the, hmm. the coastal plain right up near the beach. So we don't have very, a very thick veneer of sand offshore. Um, so that leads to some problems as well. Uh, so their program historically, and, and it's gotten them kind of where they are, has been when they do have erosions, dune erosion, they have been a proponent of beach scraping. Yeah. Talk is about to, that, will you? Tell us, tell us what that is. And if you can, I'd like your opinion on whether you think that's what, what you think about that strategy. So beach scraping, essentially what it is, is, is they go out and essentially shave a foot off of, at low tide off of the beach and push it up into the dunes. Right. And while it does help if you've got, if your situation where houses are on the precipice, it certainly makes you feel more comfortable about it. But one of the issues with that is you're lowering the upper profile. So that means that water can come further inland on every right. tide. And so when you do have lunar events or you have the northeasterlies, um, what you end up with is a very loose sand um, that is truly too coarse to hold enough water for plant growth to take off. Huh. So you don't have root mat in it. And it's it's highly it's, it's very easily eroded. Right. So you wind up with more pressure on the on the dune and a, a material that's much more uh, easily eroded, and so it tends to erode very quickly. So whatever they do, and and if you look at it year after year after year, what you see is you don't see the the profile or the dune the Toa dune stabilized in its position. Right. It's still constantly retreating. So, you know, unless you've put sand back into the system, you're really not doing anything other than it's kind of a feel-good situation. Right. And I, I think that's, you know, not to be critical of the town of, of Surf City. They're trying to do the best they can under the circumstances. Uh, but Absolutely. But that, that's not the approach that 
is effective. It's redistributing sand within the profile, uh, not where you want to go. There has to be a net increase in the volume in the profile, and that's why you're either going into channels at the end of the island or offshore. Uh, it's a cost issue, really, and it's a planning issue. Where, where do you think, uh, where do you want to get the town, uh, Chris, uh, as the engineer for the town? What are you hoping to do uh, over the next two or three years, and do you, where do you want to take them, and do you think you've got the attention of the community to do it? Well, I, I think we do. I think we have the attention of the community, definitely. So one of the things that we're looking at is, as we said, there's, there's, some, there's, there's some definite possibilities to, to add on to what we're doing with the Topsail Beach program right. and to, as we say, try to hold the line. Um, you know, we're looking at a volume of material that might get them 30 yards per linear foot right okay. now that's, for the length of the town. It's meaningful. And so that's mean. You're right. That's meaningful. It's something we can we can put forth. We're going to be able to get, you know, uh, six yards per foot from FEMA that we're probably going to haul in from a mine, and then we're going to be able through the town's money to afford another thirty yards per foot. Huh. So we're talking thirty six yards a linear foot. It's enough to hold the line until we can can do something else. And and they're they're financially in a situation they can do it. Great. Um, and so then what we do is we go from there and either we hope that the federally authorized project will come through. And if it doesn't, that at that point in time that the beach management funds with the state are, you know, that that, that pot is large enough that we can go into that. There we go. And, and then use that to go offshore along with local local funds. Right. Put those together and. And while you don't want to be um, opportunistic with FEMA, as we go along, once we build a beach, then yeah. we've got some opportunity down the road to get some cost sharing with that. And, and and you use those times when you do have FEMA coming to help you out to expand yeah, on it. Of course. And and to to do better than just the bare minimum. Right. And and those are the those are the ways that down the road you grow. And as as we've talked with Surf City and I think any town that's starting this out needs to look at whoever you're using as your consultant, look at it as look at it programmatically. Absolutely. You are not going to build a project that fixes the situation. You can build a program that can manage it, but you can't ever I mean death taxes and, and beach erosion, those are pretty guaranteed. <laughs> That's a good thing to add, but I love that sentence. You can you can't build a project that'll fix but fix it, but you can build a program that will manage the shoreline. Uh that is exactly 100% correct. It's the long-term thinking. Uh, it's the key to, it's the trick of the trade, I think, is to really, and most coastal engineering firms uh, absolutely have this uh, concept firmly in hand. It's getting the communities to come along to the notion that we are in a relationship with the beach that's going to be ongoing. And, uh, and I always compare it to ports and waterways. Nobody ever says we're going to dredge the port entrance channel for Harbor, Wilmington, Houston, Tampa. I don't care where it is in the United States. One time. That's Great. not how the ocean works. It's a fluid environment. Sediments is always in motion. And if we want a channel to support commerce and a port, damn it, every two years we're going to spend another $3 million and we're going to move the sand where we want it. And that's the right. same thing on the beach. You have to think of it long term and programmatically. And to all those legislators out there, whether they're Texas legislators or ones in Carolina, these investments are economically solid. Uh, they, they need to be done because the economy, 
that is built on these shorelines is a tourism-based economy, and it's a beach-based tourism economy. And uh, we can pretend it's not true, but there isn't any, you know, it's sort of like saying, well, I guess we don't really need to maintain the slopes and veil. It, it's natural. Yeah. Let's just let nature take. Nobody thinks like that. Nobody yeah. loses their mind until they get to the water's edge, and then they get crazy, and they start talking in ways that make no sense. Well, when in North Carolina, it's as many different things as we have with the, the uh, pharmaceutical industry and everything else. One, two, and three for economics in North Carolina are, are farming, military, and tourism. Wow. Yeah. And we're, we're, a top, we're a top three industry. And while we've got a lot of tourism in other parts of the state, the majority of it is coastal. Yeah, surprising. It's really surprising. And uh, I've mentioned it on a couple of podcasts uh the study that came out in Shore and Beach Magazine in the summer, I think it was issue two of 2018, with uh, James Houston, uh, who's done a lot of work on the coastal economics of beaches and tourism, did a fabulous in-depth study that's kind of stunning when he puts the numbers together. Uh, it's focused on Florida, but the dynamics of what he presented are applicable uh, in all of the beach communities around the country. They're pretty similar. Mm -hmm. But so Surf City, so you're trying to get, let me see if I understand this. When you do the Topsail Beach Project, which you uh, were planning to do, are going to be doing, hopefully to be able to extend that somewhat into Surf City. And that's a project where the sand source is the southern navigation channel down at the end of the island and uh, the banks channel that wraps around the backside of Topsail Island. Is that right? So you're going to try to bring some sand up to 30 cubic yards per linear foot into Surf City, and how much of it? How much? How many miles of the shoreline would get treated? That's that's what we right now. We, we think we've got enough material to do that for the the length of the six and a half miles. Wow, you know that would and, be such. And the a, way the way that we're kind of the channel, if we if we do it right. And work with the contractors correctly, then we can we can keep those the pumping distances down to what's within reason. I mean, right. not, nowadays six six and a half mile pumps are are not a not a big deal. I mean, right. they happen all the time. Yeah, um, you know, there it's not. You know, you get out there seven seven ten miles. That's that's a really long pump. I mean, there's and some of the contractors are doing some some amazing things like down in down in Louisiana. Yeah. I think Great Lakes on one of the on one of the projects down there on the the restorations was mm -hmm. pumping material twenty four miles. That's right. I've heard that. And if you have enough yeah. money, they can move it anywhere you want. But it comes it, down to dollars and cents. It's it, it's steel and horsepower. It's all yep. it is. Yep. Uh, I mean, you can move anything any distance if you got the money. That's right. Take it to the moon. Give me enough money. <laughs> Give enough money, we'll pump it to the moon. That's exactly right. But okay, so that'll put Surf City for the first time into having a comprehensive, say, or let's say, a beach restoration or, uh, project, which would be a tremendous accomplishment for that town. Finally. Yep. Um, and then. Perhaps they get into it. I mean, at some point here, and I don't know when, do you feel like the offshore sand sources are going to come into play on Topsail Island? Or can the communities on the island, the three towns, manage it from the channels and the nearshore sources or, say, the, re the recovery of material from the uh, core there, displacement? What do you think? Are we there's, there's no doubt that, that offshore sources are going to have to be used. The island's just too long. There's not the resources within the inlet systems to okay. do that. 
Okay. Um, and, and especially not without taking those completely out of kilter to the point that they become a, a sand sink. Right. Um, so there's, there's a combination of uses. The question will be down the road. If we look out, maybe even a horizon that's beyond my career, will you have gotten enough sand from offshore and rebuilt to a point that material, say, coming out of New River Inlet at the north end is feeding the system and, and material yeah. coming out of recycled out of topsail at the south end is holding back enough material that yeah. the island stabilizes and those two those you. two sources are the the essential place yeah that may be out there but that that's probably 20 years out yeah okay and and for those folks who aren't familiar with there basically a, a north to south longshore sediment transport uh, on topsail island so uh with an inlet at each end right that that provides the some sand that can be used that's what you're using is the sand from these inlets at the south end and the channels uh, but, boy, you'd have to have a pretty good stretch of no storms to make that system function, I think. You would. I mean, but what, we, what we've seen, if we look down to Figure 8 Island toward the south, what we've seen down there is, is that's kind of been, it's a, it's a shorter island, but that's what's been happening down there is they've done some work out of Rich's Inlet at the north end and Mason's okay. Inlet at the south that we've been involved in. Yeah. And we had to do work in the middle, but it's been years since any work's been done in the middle, hmm. um, simply because it's become it's relatively stable because it's been bookend. Gotcha. And it, it's and so we get you know we say we're, we're our transport is from north to south, it's actually seasonal. So our northeasters okay. are a little stronger than our southwesterlies. So in the winter we do have more transport, which is from north to south, than okay. we do in the summer. But we do have a south to north transport during about six months out of the year. Oh, wow. So, so net sediment happens, is south, but it's moving back and forth. It's oscillating through the yeah, year. Yeah, it's oscillating. So, okay. so, you know, everything swashes toward the middle. So if you get it out there, you get bleed yeah. off from both directions toward yeah. the middle. And that's the, that's the only reason I would say that we yeah. have, you know, hopes that you a chance. At, some, at some point you could get to, to where recycling out of the ends is enough. Yeah, I hear you. So this, this is that designing with nature concept everybody talks about. And in this case, if you can get the sand out of the channels back onto the island at the north-south end, you've got a system of currents that are going to move it to the middle over time. It's not a bad distribution system, and it it'll move a lot of sediment, and it's free. You don't have to put, you don't have to turn a pump on to move the sediment yep. along no. that shoreline if you can figure out how to use the system. That's right. No diesel fuel required. <laughs> no pipes along the beach that people complain about every time you do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I got I got a funny story for you. When we were doing the last project, my my uncle's a realtor, and he gave the keys to these folks to 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 show a house and. And they went and looked at it, and it was during one of the projects and um, that we were doing. It was a beach renourishment project, and the folks went and looked at the house, and they were from somewhere inland. I don't, I don't know, several states inland. And they came back, and the, they said, he said, well, what do you think of the house? They said, we thought the house was great, but we're not living in a town that will put a sewer line right on top of the beach. <laughs> yeah, the education <laughs> level, uh, yeah. It's part it's of what a- we're trying <laughs> That's part of what we're trying to do with these shows is to talk to the public about what is involved in this stuff. And yeah, you'll see a big 36-inch steel rusty pipe running several miles right down the middle of the beach. And people are like, what the hell is that? Well, it, 
give us three months, it'll be gone. But we got to put some sand on this beach. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you don't know. And I and this is Chris. I got to tell you, this is what I think one of the problems is in the industry that you work in is people do not have an intuitive sense or much of a literal sense about what the hell goes on in coastal engineering and how the projects are developed and planned and executed. And, uh, you know, that's partly what we're trying to do. And Michael Poff, who's going to lead the podcast for Building Beaches Better, starting, I hope, in January, uh, is, you know, we got to talk more about this stuff, you know. Not everybody who comes to the beach is from the beach. And, and you, know, you get these folks from the inland, like, what the hell is this? What are we doing? What is this about? Well, we're trying to talk yeah. about it because it takes a lot of money and it's important. Yeah, definitely. It definitely, it definitely does. And it, it's definitely an important thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's our, it's doing this is protecting, you know, it's not only the business side and the, the tax base, but it's, it's also protecting our culture for those of us who are, are from this area you know, right. trying to keep it right. And, you know, this, this is the beach I played on as a kid and my kids have played on and, and these yeah. are the waterways that, that they go out and boat in and do stuff. And it's, um, it's important to keep it all together. Keep it, Isn't it? keep that tradition in there. Isn't it? And it's, you know, it's inevitable to me. And, and when you, when you spend enough time talking about this with anybody, you get to this point in the conversation where people talk about, the historic family connection between what they do, who they are, and the water's edge. And it's, it's kind of remarkable. I think uh, it's, it's a bit philosophical. What is it about the edge of the water, the edge of the land, that inspires us in a certain way? Um, I hear it all of the time. Uh, people who have gone to the beach through their family history talk know remember when they were three and what it looked like and felt like and when they were five years old and then they were teenagers and what they did growing up on the american shoreline and uh it's it's a personal uh emotional connection that has great power uh it's a- absolutely i mean it does for me um you know i grew up high school and college i was uh i was fishing on a grouper boat and I, I ran my dad's grouper boat is how I put myself through school. Hmm. And so, and I still, to this day, I hold both federal and state commercial fishing license and, and do it on and on and off. I'm, I'm a weekend warrior now, but uh, still do that commercially from time to time. And it's, it's a, it's a huge piece of, of who we are and who we are down here. I mean, um, I, I dug clams on days. It was too rough to, to go offshore and, it's you know maintaining this whole system and maintaining that environment. It's it's very near and dear to my heart. I'm, yeah. I'm not just one of the guys that wants to to live at the beach. It's it's ingrained in us. Right. And, uh, it's been a privilege to be able to help out these communities here locally and, and do that. That's great. And I I you know it it is a special role, and I think it really helps to have that depth of connection to the communities that you work in. Uh, makes you really really good at your job. As I I think I talked to Steve Smith about, uh, who's on the city council over there in Topsail Beach. Is uh, he was he was saying positive things about you, and I said, well, you know, Chris has got to go to the grocery store, and if it doesn't, if things aren't working well, they're going to talk to him about it because everybody knows you personally. And there is a certain sense of obligation and duty that I think makes your professional work strong because this is your family's place. This is your family's community. 
There, there were there were fourteen people at my Thanksgiving table that all paid taxes in Surf City and Thompson Beach. <laughs> right. So <laughs> we're, yeah, we're talking about paying for this stuff. You're asking how much money is this family going to put into this deal? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I um, um, I I can't get away from it even if I send my wife to the grocery store. I mean, it's still in my house. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it is. It's very important. It's very. I mean, these folks. It's very important to me. I mean, it's it's been a, a close knit thing. It was um, my my mom before she passed this past spring. I mean, she used to play canasta with three of the ex mayor's wives in Topsail Beach. It was yeah. it's that close to the close knit community. And you know, the county two of the county commissioners go to my church and are, are close, and we're active together in the church. And it's um it is it's a very close knit community here, and, mm-hmm. and it's it's a good thing to be a part of. One of the great beach towns on the American shoreline, Topsail Beach. I love that island, and I particularly like Topsail Beach, one of my favorite on the island. But uh, we, do you have a few minutes to, uh, as if we could spend a few minutes on North Topsail Beach? <laughs> that sure. Covered that. Sure. What do, so tell us a little bit about how Topsail, uh, North Topsail Beach, now we're up at the far north end. Uh, we're next to the New River Inlet. Uh, we're getting close getting close to the Camp Lejeune up at that end, different kind of yep. town. How did the, how did Florence hit North Topsail Beach? Florence hit North Topsail with a hammer. I mean, there's really? no, no, no better way to say it. Um, the beach up there was, has been very vulnerable and it is, it is one of the things that you folks need to realize is you go up Topsail Island, Topsail is very narrow. And when you get up into North Topsail Beach, there there are areas where it's the main main highway 210 that goes up the island, mm-hmm. and one row, maybe two row of homes. Yeah, you know, one on each side. It's very narrow. Yeah, um, and it's been very vulnerable. And there are the rock outcrop is relatively shallow there, so it, it hmm. exposes itself very close to shore. Hmm. Um, when the storm came there. Uh, the majority of the dune for that 14 mile section of the island was completely obliterated. Um, so, hmm. and, and then the shoreline moved back to where there are lots of homes up there now that on, on a normal tidal cycle, water's coming underneath the, the pilings. Wow. And it's in some ways, it's, it's, I would say it's one of the worst kind of situations because yeah. you have these homes. It, it really is. I mean, the storm, the wind wasn't enough to blow the homes over. So you have these fully intact homes that are literally out, you know, beyond the high yeah. water mark now. Wow. So yeah, what, are they inhabited. Are they inhabited still? Do they still have their certificates of habitability? I, I, they're still going through that of what's occupiable, what's not, what can yeah. have power turned on, what can't. That's still that process is is so heavy that it's still ongoing yeah um, there are some there are obviously multiple homes that are not inhabitable up there now uh a large percentage of the, of the of the front row is not inhabitable wow. right now and then so where do we go from that and and looking at how much material needs to be put out there to where you can have enough base yeah be, beach and berm and land to begin to think about putting a dune up yeah. Where it's not out in the middle of the water, that's uh, that's highly problematic. And the other part is they're in a Coastal Barrier Resource Act area. Uh, about two thirds of the town did. Yeah. Let me. So for the, so, tell our tell our listeners that's the Coastal Barrier Resources Act, a federal statute that 
defines areas where federal funds can be used, and it's meant to uh, inhibit federal investment on highly vulnerable shorelines. So if you were in a COBRA unit, you get no federal transportation money, you get no federal shoreline management money, uh, and I'm not even sure NFIP is available in a COBRA unit, is it? It's a, it's it, it, a, is, it is not. Yeah. Matter of fact, some of those homes, and there there are a lot of uh, you know McMansions up in that area. That um, I understand that their their flood insurance uh, on an annual basis can exceed twenty to thirty thousand dollars. So, so yeah, because they're having to go through Lloyd's or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So this is where the reason I want to talk a little bit about. I hope you have en- enough time to continue this because I'd like to go a little bit deeper into North Topsail Beach because. It, the, the policy issues involved here are substantial and complicated, and um, and I'll just say as an overview that when you listen to the folks at the Center for Developed Shorelines at Western Carolina, I think they're at Western Carolina University there, this is sort of the poster child of, gee whiz, we shouldn't be building on barrier islands. Uh, when you look at the condition of the homes, the dynamic, that this is a very dynamic shoreline next to the New River Inlet. It's been very hard to manage. The resulting strategies so far have been, I would say, I would, I don't know, do you want to say terrible? I, I don't, I'm not an engineer, you are, but I think it hasn't been very good. We, what we've ended up with right now is a highly armored shoreline with large sandbags trying to prevent major structures from falling into the ocean. No, this is not an outcome anybody wants, Chris. And so from an engineering standpoint, this thing is such a puzzle. Is it even, what the hell can you do here? I mean, it's a tough one. Well, it's the, the, the issue that you've got it gets back to, you can do anything with enough money. Right. But the problem is there's, there's not enough money in a, the places where there are large amounts of money right now that the town's precluded of going to, you know, they, they can't get right. in, in the Cobra zone. They can't even get federal loans. Um, wow. so, that's pro- that's really problematic to do. Um, the other the other part of that is the length of shoreline per their uh, tax base. Yeah, because it's so narrow. I mean, if you you know there there are towns there there are beach towns and there are towns with a beach. Hmm. And as long as they have interest, Towns with a beach are easy because they've got a big tax base to deal with a, a small portion of the town. Right. And you've got towns like North Topsail that are truly a beach town. There's no commercial. I think no. there's – I think Trailer Bar is about it in North Topsail Beach for commercial. And there literally isn't a convenience store in that town. There is no hotel. Um, no. It is – you know, for those of you looking for a place – and one of the reasons it's popular is uh, – it is not, it is absolutely non-commercial, which is fabulous in some ways, but means you have no tax base, which right. then presents real problems. And, and it does. And they're a young town. I mean, I, I think they were incorporated. I want to say '96. I know it was mid '90s. Yeah. So, so they've been incorporated less than less than 20 years, and I mean less than 25 years. So they're they're kind of and and this problem. Um, this problem has been ongoing. They, they've, they've historically, this hasn't just started in the last five no. years. I mean, they've been working on this off and on right. since 2000. Just a couple. That was part of the reason I think the town incorporated. Yeah, was to begin this process. And 
you know, you look at that and they've kind of, there are some, some of the projects that definitely could have been done in a better way or combined with other things that would have been more effective. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, the, some of the problem they had up at the new river inlet in is the, the solution actually created a bigger problem in some ways. And then yeah. they wound up having to sandbag that northern – I mean the whole northern end is sandbagged. And amazingly, through the storm, that's the, that's the area that fared the best. I okay. mean they, they, came out, they came out good. good. The, the sandbags did what they were supposed to do. They protected them. And they, they had nothing to lose because they were sandbagged. Right. Um, and they lost nothing. So that was, that was good. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, of course we don't, we don't want to see our coastline look like that, but they do have a large scale problem because they're a very small community and they've got a very long shoreline. I, I think it's, yeah, actually as a municipal, I think other than Oak Island, I think they've got the longest single municipal shoreline in the state. Wow. I didn't know that. Uh, that does make it challenging. Uh, and here's, what's also interesting from my standpoint, having worked over there on the, on the financial planning side is it's amazing the political differences from Topsail Beach at the south end and Surf City, which uh, in the middle, and North Topsail. Uh, the two counties that are involved here, uh, Pender County in the southern communities and Onslow County to the north are very different places. They're very different politically. They're very different in terms of their understanding of the shoreline and how the shoreline fits into the county's overall economy. Mm -hmm. uh, Onslow County is the is the home of Camp Lejeune, which is the largest, I believe, the largest uh, base for the uh, United States Marine Corps. And all during the uh, Gulf War and the Second Gulf War was the point of deployment for the combat forces and the special forces from the U.S. Marines. Let's just say busy place, a lot of money, not thinking about the beach there a lot. That Those county leaders... Uh, don't have the same affinity for the shoreline as they do in Pender. At least that, I mean, you live there. Tell Chris, am I on the right track there? You're, you're exactly right. I mean, that, that, as I said before, there are beach towns and towns with a beach. There okay. are beach counties and counties with a beach. Onslow County is a county with a beach. Uh -huh. And Pender is, is agriculture and a beach county. I mean, yeah. we have, when you look at the county resources, the majority of Pender's resources are right here on the coast. Yeah. And the majority of Onslow's resources are within Camp Lejeune. And the majority of their their population and their businesses are geared towards supporting the Marine Corps. Right. So it is it is very different. They have very different interests. Uh, and, and Jacksonville itself is not – I mean, it's a, it, in the grand scheme of the United States, it's a small town. And right. As far as towns near the coast of North Carolina, it, it's, a, it's a, one of the larger towns near the coast. And that's they're twenty miles inland, basically. Yeah. So um, the yeah. focus is a lot different in Onslow County. And you know, I think for it, for beach communities around the country and folks who list, I hope are listening to the local control podcast as local officials. Geography, uh, political interest, communities of interest have a tremendous impact on what latitude the engineers have in terms of approaching a problem. Uh, I think. I think working down in Pender and working in Topsail, uh, the relationship between the beach town and the county is rock solid. They're financial partners on the projects. They understand the economics of the communities that they're managing. 
and the interest that they have in good shoreline management, those dynamics are natural to that area for the reasons that you laid out. And and this is something that I think folks in the general public also need to try to think through is what's happening in these communities to a great extent is not simply a technical engineering issue. In fact, Chris, I think the engineering stuff is the, the most understandable thing you can you can it's, do it's, it's le- the engineering is the least complicated part of a right. coastal engineering project. I yeah. mean, that's we we have to be CPAs, lawyers, yeah. politicians, oh my God. environmentalists, all of it rolled yeah. into one. And if you if you can't fully understand all of it, you get lost real quick. It's, it's absolutely true. And and uh, for uh, folks in uh, in in the in the in college now, getting an engineering degree or coming up in the profession, I, I was talking to one engineer at the ASBPA conference, and he said, you know, I just wish I would have majored in sociology somewhere along the line, because I end up in these conversations that are so much more different than, you know, what I was trained in. And I think that's the point you're talking about, is it's everything comes down to the engineer. You guys are the point, and you have to somehow sort this all out. Yeah, and, and we're not naturally good at that. No, I've always <laughs> – <laughs> I, I love it when I'm, when I'm working with engineers, and, and, and I've worked with a bunch of different ones in the public arena, and some of them are natural. There's only I've only met two, who, and you would be one of them, who I think are uh, conversant in the public dialogue and, and, and okay explaining complicated engineering principles uh, to the public. And a lot of them – and I get that why that's true because – this is why I say coastal. there's nothing like being a coastal engineer because if you're building a building and you have a meeting about a building, and this happens all the time, engineers have to present stuff about a building in New York City, what you generally don't end up doing is having a debate about the structural integrity of the building or the girder design. In other words, people might say, I like the building, I don't like the look of it, I wish it was a different color. Okay, that's acceptable. But when you're a beach engineer... Uh, and you're in front of a group of people, someone will get up and say, well, I've lived here a long time, and let me tell you what this beach is doing. And you're saying, you know, here you have this raft of data, you have historical photographs, you have all of this information, and it's because it's a beach that people feel expert. The general public doesn't feel expert, you know, when you walk in and want to talk about a road design or a, or a bridge or a building. Yeah. People would not intuitively say, guess what, let me tell you how to design that bridge. That, that this doesn't happen. Right. They might tell you they like it or don't like it or they don't like where it is, but they're not going to tell you how to design it. But you get into a beach conversation and somebody who's, you know, intelligent and but been around the water for a while will absolutely bring up, let me tell you how to design this beach. <laughs> well, you know, the, the best part about working in, working in your hometown community is when they say, I've lived here for 30 years and da 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 and You can kind of look at them and go, okay, well, so it's nice you moved to the neighborhood. Yeah, welcome. Glad <laughs> welcome. you're here. <laughs> that does sound. Steve Mercer was telling us, uh, you know, he has that coastal transplant business there. His family is 10 generations deep in North Carolina. I mean, these this you're right that those deep roots matter but we're what we're talking about is the interface of the oh, yeah, technical design and you know the technical design the the political understanding of that uh the financial understanding of that and the community relationship plus the environmental what a job what a career you have 
It, it is, you know, and it, it is it is about a lot about relating people and relating things to topics they understand and putting it in their perspective. And that's probably one of the hardest parts of our job is doing that, especially – and you have to do a lot of community outreach because these things – yeah, there has to be buy-in or it doesn't work. And, you know, I, yeah. I remember when Topsail, when we were first talking about – and they were, they were up in the, the ad valorem – to add on so they had enough money to do yeah. what they needed to do. And and folks were starting to fuss about it. And, and you looked at it, you put it in perspective and said, all right, your cable bill was this month, much a month, right? Yeah. Are, would you be willing to pay your cable bill so your house doesn't fall in the water? Yeah. Well, yeah. well that's, that's, what, that's the amount of money you're putting into this. Yeah. It's your cable yeah. bill every month. And so – and, and that little bit, you know, with everybody doing it and the 1,500 properties and all of that goes in there and, and, it, and it works out. But you have to put it into perspectives that, that, people, that people understand and, you know, talk to them. It, it's, it's a really hard thing to make sure that you're always talking at the right level. You know, there's a different level yeah. you talk at in D.C. and a different level you talk at in Raleigh yeah. and a different level that you talk yeah. at with the commissioners or, or local folks mm-hmm. here. It's, um, yeah, and the homeowners association. And the homeowners associations all and all of that. It's, um, you definitely have to, to speak to their level. And if, if you're, if you're able to do that and communicate that way, it makes life a whole lot easier. It, it does. And I, and I will say in my experience in having done that a bunch of times now, uh, a, it's absolutely required. So the engineers have to wade into the conversation even if they don't want to or have someone as an intermediary who can translate it. But you have to because we're asking them to pay. And I've always said, you know, if we can't explain this to the people who are going to write a check every month through their property taxes, then we don't, you know, we have to earn that respect. And part of my confidence and optimism when it comes to that conversation is I think the engineering, the coastal engineering community is is solid. It works through the details. There is a reason that you're ending up in a particular approach or a solution, and it's because you've thrown away every easy one. You've tried to find the cheapest, most effective one you can. And in other words, when you have the facts on your side, when you're right about it, uh, it's important you have to be able to wade into that community and you have to be able to lay that out. And you have to educate people. And that means when someone gets up and says, well, damn it, we just ought to build a wall offshore and we can stop all of the waves. We say, well, okay, let's let's break that down. Let's find out if... I always say, I tell you what, you walk into a, a room and tell me how to fix this problem for half the price, I promise you there isn't a person at the city council or the county commission or the engineering community that wouldn't jump at that in a New York minute. And the, re- and the reason they're not doing that is because... You're missing something in what you're seeing, and let's talk about that and go through the process of of weeding out alternatives that don't work or aren't appropriate in this particular situation. And, you know, it's it's part of the effort of building a coastal program as opposed to a project, but an ongoing program is the level of education that is required between the engineers, the decision makers, and the elected seats and the homeowners in the community is it's a high bar and you got to do it. Yep. Definitely. Well, Chris, so, uh, so topsoil at North topsoil, try to get back. So tough situation got hammered. 
How many? How much? What was the sediment loss? Do you think up there in North Topsail Beach? Do you have a number? Well, I mean, if, I don't know the exact numbers yet. I mean, if we look at it and, and say we're comparatively to the the other towns, um, three and a half, four million cubic yards. Wow, that's a big number. Yeah, man, and that's lost. And they were all they were already in a triage situation as it was. Yeah, so the patient was sort of, I wouldn't say on the deathbed, but let's say pretty critical going in and then just took a big hit. Yeah, they, they did. So, I mean, you, realistically, I think, and this is this is just an opinion at this point because there's right. not hard data to, to support it. But, I mean, we talk about a 50-yard-a-foot project. Realistically, that town needs a, a, a 150-plus yeah. to really try to get themselves stabilized. Wow. Um, you know, and at that, that magnitude, um, you're talking, you know, 12 million yards, something like that. Wow. That would be huge. Uh, is, is, it, it, it would be the equivalent of like Long Beach Island, uh, New Jersey that went, went, the core went through a couple of years ago. Wow. I think that was 11 million. And by the time they got done doing it, they'd actually re-nourished one end of it, I think twice. Man, so I mean that's that's the magnitude you're talking about uh, wow. for North Topsail Beach. I mean that's that's reality. Wow, uh, is there? And that's not New River Inlet quantities. <laughs> that's not a you no, can't no, get New that. River, you can't New get, River Inlet. You can't get even that if, even if you got into to New River Inlet and did the whole system and got yeah. everything you could all the way to Channel to Jacks and yeah. the disposal disposal island that they've used up there that's got got sand in it. Yeah, you might be talking three million yards. I mean, right. you're definitely talking about offshore resources and you know tapping into what the core is already designated long term and yeah. Doing that, but those are those are all of that is, you know. Again, you're stretching it over a long distance. There's everything from New Rivers limited to the top four or five miles. Yeah, the other ten's got to come from offshore, regardless. Man, so got to ask you about the planned. Where's the terminal groin discussion right now? Uh, there, tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about what that idea is, and tell us where it is in the process. Um. Okay, uh, and I'm gonna need to be quick because I've got to kind of step off. All right. Here a minute. Okay, five minutes. Five five minutes. So um, the terminal groin, and I, I'm not working directly on the terminal groin. Um, applied Technology and Management out of Charleston is the is the engineering firm that's that's doing that. Okay. Um, so I, I think I would refer to them as far as where okay. they are in that process, but I do know. They're looking at putting in a structure uh, on the north end of the island. It's uh, somewhere on the order of 2,000 feet long, and about maybe 700 of that actually extends out into the ocean. The right. rest of it is protecting the end of the island. Yeah. But, yeah, that, they're trying to have a sand retention strategy there at the north end of the island with a structure. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're trying to basically capture sand that is back past into the inlet Um uh, as we have our southwest winds, right. and not trying to not trying to do a navigation jetty, but strictly to to shore up the end of the island and keep it from going back into the inlet system. Got it, got it. Well, listen, I could we could go on a lot longer, and and uh, I will say I'd like to maybe talk again at another time. But I really appreciate you taking the time to walk us from the south end to Topsail Island up to the north end, talking about the engineering. And about some of the local community development decision considerations that come into play, Chris, it's, it's very informative. And I, I will say that uh, 
for beach communities that are struggling to figure out how to approach um, shoreline management and these high cost decisions, uh, having someone, a professional of your caliber around is, uh, is a great thing to do. Uh, you have to have good, smart thinking guys, especially that are cost sensitive. And I've always admired that about your work, Chris, is you guys really bust your butt to find the solution that can be implemented, not simply what is theoretically interesting or possible, but what you can afford to do long-term to manage a shoreline that's moving around all the time. I, I really appreciate that, Peter. I mean, it is something we strive to do is to, to build things, to design things that are buildable. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, it's important. It's important to, to, to do all of that and to work within the constraints of the community. And um, sometimes you have to give them what they can get rather than what they want. Yeah. But that's, um, you know, it's, that's oftentimes better than nothing at all. So yeah. um, we've, we've taken a lot of pride in doing that. And, and uh, we're really glad to talk to you about all of this. It's an interesting thing. It's something that's been near and dear to my heart, uh, particularly because I'm part of this community. Yeah. So, um, but thank you for having me on. Right. Thank you, Chris, and and uh, appreciate you being on the local being on the local control podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, thanks to all our listeners out there, and uh, we look forward to hearing uh, from you again, Chris, and uh, look forward to uh, further discussions about the Great American Shoreline. <laughs> Thank you.